You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, you can help out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, first let's welcome our new patrons for this week, Eric and uh, Jason and Carrie. Thank you guys so much for your generosity and for helping to keep this podcast going, which you really do. You may not know it, but you really do. (laughs) Your support, honestly, I say this every week, it's absolutely overwhelming to me, and I can't thank you guys enough. Those of you who are patrons, um, every day, every Tuesday when the show airs in the United States, uh, I go live and put up a live discussion thing where we're kind of making little comments back and forth to each other. So if you're a patron, you can come and join us for that. Sort of my uh, online mystery science uh, (laughs) theater type thing going on for uh, the airing of The Curse of Oak Island. Now, before we begin, uh, uh, I think it's appropriate for us to mark the passing of someone who was a real giant in the Oak Island community. Um, Author and researcher Joyce Steele passed away earlier this week. Um, She is most notably the uh, co-author of the book, The Oak Island Mystery Solved. Her work with her co-author and geologist Gordon Fader, as well as her uh, decades worth of independent research on the history of Oak Island, served really to open um, new doors for all of us looking for the truth here. And she really changed the conventional thinking around this mystery, to say the least. Now, perhaps her work wasn't appreciated in her time by much of the Oak Island community, uh, certainly not by the cast and crew of the show, uh, but it should have been, and it still can be. She leaves behind um, an amazing legacy, really, and will always be part of the Oak Island story now. Our condolences from everybody here, from my family, to um, her friends and her family, and of course, to our friend Gordon Fader, Um, we wish you guys all the best. Uh, we offer you our condolences and we thank Joy Steele for all she has done and accomplished in our shared search for the truth behind this mystery. Okay. I know that's a somber note to begin with, but let's get over to your uh, questions and answer section here from the emails from you guys. Let's begin with our friend, Steve, who writes, Dave, another great podcast episode, just throwing uh, a thought out there. You may recall When Pope Clement V abolished the Knights Templar in 1312, many Templars escaped to Portugal, becoming the military order of Christ. So the Portuguese and the Templars both being on Oak Island isn't necessarily incongruous. It would explain both the potential Portuguese artifacts and the carvings and artifacts like the lead cross that have been attributed to the Templars. Not just Templars, but specifically the military order of Christ. Have a good weekend, Steve. Okay, Steve, thank you very much for the email. Um, and it brings up a topic that we haven't talked about in a couple of years, I think. So uh, since we haven't done so, let's review our European history, shall we? Our, our Middle Ages European history. On Friday, the 13th of October, in I believe 1307, not 1312, uh, King Philip IV of France who, by the way, was deeply in debt to the Templars financially, ordered all of the Templars, at least all the Templars in his his kingdom, rounded up and executed. 
These were on charges of heresy and things like that. Later that month, Pope Clement, also probably in a little bit of debt himself with the Templars, then issued an order which instructed every, um, what would we call it, Christian, Catholic monarch, every every king in Europe who uh, lives under the Catholic Church to also arrest any Templars in their kingdoms. However, the Portuguese monarch, King Denise, uh, did not comply with this order. In fact... The king of Portugal owed a lot more than just money to the Templars. In fact, he owned, uh, might have actually owned his throne and his country to the Templars. The Templars had been instrumental in a fight uh, and helped to win a war for the Portuguese and were um, hugely involved in the country's reconstruction also after the fighting. I'm not going to get too much into that war. It doesn't really matter. The king was not about to abandon who was now his loyal knights, his friends, no matter what the king of France or the pope in Italy had to say about any of this. He instead kind of found a back door here. He reformed the Portuguese Templars and also likely many other knights Templar who had fled to Portugal in order to avoid persecution in their own home country. He reformed them into something he called the Military Order of Christ. The king even convinced a new pope a few years later to actually recognize the order of Christ and essentially grant them the assets that were of the former Templars. Now, the order of Christ became extremely important for Portugal throughout the the next few hundred years, really, a couple hundred years, and especially during what we call the Portuguese Age of Exploration. So if you're looking for a Templar-related organization, that was involved with the new world in some way, you may just have your guys in the order of Christ. So yes, Steve, that connection, if you believe one exists, can certainly be made. The Portuguese and the Templars are not always separate entities. Certainly an avenue worth exploring if we do prove some sort of Portuguese presence on the island. Let's go now to another great uh, an email from another great friend of the show, Lionel, our man in Portugal, who writes, Hi, Dave, as always. Congratulations on the great podcast. Thank you, sir. Uh, with so many mentions of these Portuguese in the show and comments, perhaps I can provide some local insight this year. Uh, starting off, I've just made a post on your Facebook page, which you can go to the Facebook page and see. Uh, these are pictures I took this summer while hiking on one of the best-preserved Roman medieval-repaired cobblestone paths. Uh, and then he says it in Portuguese, which I'm not going to try, Calcada de Alpajaras or something, uh, in northeastern Portugal. Uh, the word Calcada, I think, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, simply means paved path. You could see a detail of its build, myself on it for a size reference, and a perspective of the rugged terrain it crosses. A few of these remain. They were critical to link regions directly over mountains, which would otherwise require perilous mountaineering or long detours. The central stone vein of guide stones is one of the hallmarks of its Roman-era section. When these cobblestones paths were built entirely during the Middle Ages, there was no such central vein. Uh, Thank you, Lionel. These are great photos. Go and take a look at it. It's obviously a beautiful place. Uh, Now, this goes back to Terry DeVoe's theory that equates what we're seeing in the swamp uh, with something that he says, and Lionel seems to agree here, is typical of a medieval Portuguese um, cobblestone path. I'll say this, Lionel. I'm not completely sold on this connection just yet. 
certainly think it's possible. It's definitely intriguing that the two of you kind of uh, have shown this. But I'm also fairly certain and do know that other cultures used rocks to make a stable path for them to carry difficult uh, cargo over difficult terrain. I know this is not only the Portuguese that could have done this. Um, But I also think that actually pinpointing the origin of this path is going to be tough, made even tougher (laughs) thanks to decisions made in this particular episode. We're about to discuss more on that later. Uh, Thank you so much, Lena. Great, great pictures. Again, just go to your search bar and put in Diggin' Oak Island on Facebook, and I shared his post that he posted on there so that everybody can see it. Uh, If you're having a hard time finding it, just let me know, and I'll try to redo that for you. Um, Okay. Let's go now to another listener named Mike, who says, this may seem a little out of left field. However, might I suggest an expert at finding and mining for gold be consulted? I think the perfect person to determine if gold mining has occurred on Oak Island or if the if the gold they are finding is treasure would be Freddie Dodge. Freddie Dodge is an American gold miner and a reality television personality. Freddie Dodge first came to national attention after appearing briefly on seasons one and two of Gold Rush on the Discovery Channel. Currently, he's doing a show that helps unsuccessful miners become profitable. If anyone can answer this question, it's Freddie. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Mike, I got to tell you, I'm not very familiar with Mr. Dodge, nor am I really too familiar with the show Gold Rush. I believe it airs or it used to air on Friday nights. And for those of you who don't know, I'm a professional musician by trade. And anything that airs on Fridays or Saturday nights tends to be well off my radar screen. So, What I will say, however, is that when it comes to the gold on being quote-unquote found on Oak Island this season, um, it is funny how it seems now, well, a couple things. It seems funny that we never talk about anything besides how it could be treasure, and it also is a little interesting that everything we find this year seems to have traces of gold. When it comes to this gold... What we have been, and the traces in the water and all this stuff, not just the artifacts, we really have been given precious little, almost no information on possible explanations that go beyond the idea of hunting for treasure, right? What we talk about here a lot is trying to get to the truth. If you're trying to get to the truth, you got to open up all avenues. If you're trying to show us that you're that you're really looking for the truth, you're trying to open up every possible door as to where this gold might be from. For instance, why would you want to spend millions of dollars drilling a giant can into the ground if you know that the gold is maybe natural? And what are you doing to to find out if it is? Well, these are things we don't hear about on the show. And also, again, not to, to mention this too much, we learn a little bit more about maybe what the goal really is here, right? There's been no talk about um, what might be found in the surrounding areas. Was there a history of gold mining in Atlantic Canada? Uh, is there a lot of gold? Nothing. Very Almost nothing. Just a lot of talk about treasure. And until we find said treasure, I think we need to explore less fantastical possibilities as, as we possibly can. But I can assure you, Mike, that if Freddie Dodge comes on to do anything besides say this is treasure... You will never see Freddie Dodge on this show. I think they made that clear today. Anyway, okay. Thank you so much, Mike. Great email. 
All right, we heard from our man in Portugal already, so it's time now to hear from our man in England, Gary, who writes, Hi, Dave. While carrying out some general Oak Island research, I came across this website, and it is Oak Island, uh, Oak, uh, Oak hyphen island hyphen solve dot weebly dot com. Um, despite the name of the site, it does not mention solving the overall Oak Island mystery, but does suggest a solution for the source of the U-shaped structure in Smith's Cove. The amazing suggestion is that it, it remains it is the remains of a roof ripped off a barn on Quaker Island by a hurricane and then deposited on Oak Island. It has been very well researched and certainly seems a logical, if somewhat surprising, suggestion. This is new to me and has not been mentioned on the show, and I wondered if you had come across this before. Regards, Gary. Uh, Gary, this is news to me. I have not seen this, uh, this, nor have I seen this um, website that you're showing me here. I, I, I don't know what it is, and I have started to read through it. Um, it's always nice to see some new content on things like this, and I'll, I'll, I'll put the link on Facebook, too, for you guys to judge when I'll get everything out there. Um, it describes itself as, quote, here to explore alternative explanations as to what has happened on the island since Europeans started visiting Nova Scotia, end quote. Now, like I said, Gary, I'm going to go read through this some more, uh, and I'll come back if there's anything that really um, interests me about it in the future weeks. But I have to tell you, I have a few issues with some of the information it's presenting just in the first few paragraphs. For instance, it says the U-shaped structure was not found, in quotes, by previous cofferdam projects in the 1800s, and therefore concluding that it must not have been there, that it must not have come to the, to the island until sometime after these dam projects in the 1800s and before Dan Blankenship. As far as I know, that's not correct because of the location of Dan's cofferdam was very different to the others, as was also the water levels and all that kind of stuff. Anyway... I don't want to pass too much judgment right off the bat on it because I don't, again, I don't really know uh, much about it and I haven't read through it and I don't know who these guys are writing this and I don't, again, I don't want to get too much into it until I get a little bit more on it. I hope that makes sense. Sorry I couldn't give you a better answer, but it is fascinating and I do uh, ask that anybody out there who is um, willing to read through this, you know, go ahead and let's, let's comment on it and see if these guys really are giving us an alternative explanation like they say they are. I'm always looking for one of those. Now, before we wrap up the question, listener, question and answer period here, I know there is a friend of the show, Paul, out there who uh, wrote us a question. Um, I'm not going to say what it's about, but Paul, I am working on it. <laughs> I'm working on actually getting you an answer from an expert on this. So uh, I will keep this earmarked and we'll get to that one later on. If you would like to send a question for me to answer, just send it on to diggingoakisland at gmail.com, and then we will do our very best to get it answered in a future episode of the podcast. So let's take a little break here, and we'll come back and discuss this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island. All right, it's time now to discuss Season 9, Episode 6 of The Curse of Oak Island called The Root Cause. We'll get to that pun in a little bit. Uh, let's quickly go over, go through the money pit since there wasn't really a whole lot to discuss there in this episode. What we see this week is them digging a new hole. This one is called D1.5. It's uh, really almost directly west of C1 and kind of the edge of the... Um, of the money pit area, you know, and a lot of these overhead shots, what we're seeing is 
a picture of them digging by this green stone structure. And a lot of times I get, see people on the internet on certain, you know, fan Facebook fan sites, Rogue Island, all that stuff, pointing this out, pointing how close they are to this and wondering what this could be and why this is here. Um, and are they going to destroy it and all that kind of stuff? What that is, just so you know, and if you haven't been, if, you, if you've been listening to, you know what it is. It is like a memorial type of thing that Rick made. So it is not an original structure. It's not something from it. It doesn't mark a money pin. There's nothing like that. It's a. It's because Rick thought this was way off the beaten path of where the money pit would be. He built this sort of memorial there with some of the stones from the holes they've pulled out and some grass and things like that, that I think, if I'm not mistaken, is dedicated to the women who have uh, sort of suffered through the Oak Island treasure hunt themselves. Um, so that's what that is. I guess if they need to, they can just bulldoze that and make the memorial somewhere else. Again, it's nothing historical. It's something that um, that Rick did. In this new D1.5 hole, they're finding more wood down at the depths. They're ta- making a big deal about how this is a little bit higher than it was before, like 84 feet instead of 89 or something like that. It's a, I, I know they like to say... And I hate poo-pooing this stuff, but I know they like to say that wood means they're onto a tunnel or a chamber. I'm just not so sure of that. I'm not really sold on that kind of stuff. We've seen a lot of this over the years. Um, there's been a lot of searcher activity. And the thing, the, the worst kept secret that everybody will tell you, uh, but they won't mention on the, on the show, is that there's been tons of searcher work that we know nothing about, that was never documented. Because treasure hunters don't like to tell people how they do things. The idea of leaving behind trail of what you did for the next person, nobody really cared about that until recently. We're looking for the treasure. We didn't find it. We pack up. We try to recover our, our financial loss that we just took, and we move on. You know, We fill the holes back in, and we don't really care how we do that. So there's a lot of searcher activity here. There's also just tons of backfill. Now, all the stuff found at relatively the same depth, which seems to be what they're finding in these little holes they're poking, does seem to make backfill a little less likely. I'd imagine um, that backfill would probably have a much more random quality to it. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty certain it would. But it doesn't mean that they're on a treasure chamber. It could mean they're on to some pretty extensive searcher activity that nobody knows anything about, which would not be out of the realm of possibility. Now, um, later, Alex pulls out a small piece of wood, like a little puck of wood, and he calls it hand axe cut. There's not not a lot to discuss here. We didn't really follow this one up, so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to get too far into it. Um, And then Craig kind of puts it all together for us. He calls this a big can area. Reminding us that what we're really watching here is a drilling project that's who's primarily concerned with finding information, and that the this is just this is just the 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 opening act for the main event, which are these big cans coming soon. And I think because of that, if I'm going to get into sort of critiquing television shows here. I am starting to find the money pit scenes are getting a bit monotonous, right? We're pulling up these things. We're cutting it open. We're making a big deal about the same thing. We find wood. Oh, my God, here's the wood. But we don't really know what any of it means. 
All we know is what it means is that they're zeroing in on where they're going to put the cans. So from a viewer perspective, I certainly understand the people who's who feel like, oh, let's just get to the cans then, please. We don't need to keep watching. I get that. I don't particularly agree with it because I like it all, but I, I get what you're saying. I was intrigued, however, by Marty talking about his offset chamber theory. This isn't a new theory. This isn't one that Marty made up to himself. But it's the idea that the money pit really is essentially a distraction to keep searchers going down and not going off to the side chamber uh, where it all real is, digging, you know, the, basically digging in the wrong direction. What I'll say is that uh, this is sort of a, a take on the idea, again, and a very good idea that a lot of treasure hunters and a lot of people who research this feel um, the idea that they think the bottom of the money pit uh, might not be where the treasure is because the depositors simply would have created an easier way. Well, let me not put it this way. The bottom of the money pit might be where the treasure is, but digging straight down into the money pit is not the way to get at it, Right. Or it might be offset because, again, if if your goal here is to bury something that you're going to retrieve, I, I got to think you got to come up with a better way than building a hundred foot shaft in the 1700s with you know what are now garden tools, right? It just doesn't make any just doesn't make any sense. But again, I still think we're in the pregame here, and that we're obviously seeing as other stories in the. Um, in the in in the in the hunt last this past summer start to unfold for us that we are definitely getting to the point here where the big cans are what this season is going to be all about Okay, let's head west now to the other side of the island to discuss the work being done over on Lot 4 of all places. This is where they think the hatch uh, from Zena Halpern's map is. If you need to learn more about that, listen to last week's podcast if you need to catch up. Don't want to go over all that again. Don't want to go over my thoughts on Zena Halpern's map or any of that stuff again. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is they showed that there are 11 targets over here that they're looking at from the survey done last week. So basically what that means, you know, I said this last week, the idea that this magnetometer survey pointed to evidence of a hatch is really a gross over-exaggeration of what this survey actually told them. So, so exaggerated, really, it's kind of silly because the hit that isn't near where the hatch is, looks exactly the same on the map as the hit that happens to be in a spot. And it would be hard to look at the map and these hits and not be able to equate some of them to Zena Halpern's map. Because if you look at Zena Halpern's map, it's pointing to places all over the island, right? So we're really kind of making a lot out of this that hopefully I'm proved wrong here, but it just doesn't it just seems very exaggerated. Now, there's a brief mention of something else you think that we should make a little less brief than <laughs> than they did. They mentioned that the work here, what they're about what we're about to see, the metal detecting that they're about to do, um, is basically a hunt for clues as to what might be over here, clues that they then will use to get permission and permits from the government 
so that they can then tear the land up, right? Because if you remember last week's discussion or the week previous week's discussion about the green zones and the red zones, this is not a green zone. The only place they have carte blanche to work on is the money pit and much of Smith's Cove. That's it. So what they're doing over here is they're getting information to get the permits. And then guess what? Laird Niven needs to be there to make sure they don't dig up anything. Just remember that as we get into the next segment of the show, that they're doing this and they're taking the time to do this. Okay. So Gary is metal detecting. Now, this is another question I have, and I'm throwing this out here for you, the listeners. Um, if you're going about looking for a hatch from an ancient map, why would you use a metal detector? I, I mean, I, what do I know? I, I have no idea. Uh, are we assuming that the hatch is like a metal hatch? I mean, come on. I, I can't imagine it is. Anyway. They're detecting. He finds a piece of small, small little piece of metal. It's an unidentified piece. It seems to be curved. He thinks there's a design on it. We don't get any follow-up on that. We also get no follow-up on this leather strap and a buckle. It's nothing too exciting. This is all stuff that one would expect to find in an inhabited island, one that's been inhabited for hundreds of years. Now, later on, he finds a button. And then he takes it to the archaeology trailer, my favorite place, uh, for Kelly Barassa to clean it up. And then put it in this XRF thingy. That's, you know, what's to see what it's made of, to see its chemical composition, right? And like everything else that Kelly Barassa seems to put in this machine this year, lo and behold, it has traces of gold and silver. Now, I don't think this is nefarious. I just think we're only seeing the stuff that has gold and silver, right? And this leads them all to speculate uh, that this might be from a military officer's uniform. And I just want to end this segment by saying this. That may very well be the case. But just this is the, this is the example of the reason why I do this podcast. <laughs> because I think it might be, it could be from a military's off, military officer's uniform. But it's important to keep in mind that that is not the only thing it could be. I can assure you that other people besides military officers have gold-plated buttons. There's no mention of how old this is or what it looks like, nothing. Only that it has gold and silver. And from that, they conclude it must be an old military officer's button. And I'm just here to tell you that unless there is a whole ton of information they're not giving us that they actually found out before they made these conclusions that that conclusion is a wild over-speculation of what finding gold and silver on a button might actually mean. All right, got another hard part here, and um, I'm going to apologize in advance for those of you who are here to hear me talk about how much I love the Laginas. We're going to have another one of these things here. Um, that's going to sound probably worse than I actually feel about it, but let's finish up over at the swamp and with other sort of swamp-related activities. Now, the first scene we see is Alex Lagina heading to the swamp to meet with Laird Niven and his team of archaeologists, uh, Miriam Amaro, uh, Liz Michaels, and Helen Sheldon. Have we seen Helen Sheldon before? She looked familiar to me. I just didn't see her a lot. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Uh, and what we see here is that this small section of the swamp, the southeast corner of the swamp where Laird and his team 
found ancient First Nations artifacts a couple of weeks back has now turned into what is a full-blown archaeological dig, a very slow, methodical process where they're picking out every little thing to get the full picture of what's happening here. Kind of very, very similar to the one we saw over at the Samuel Ball home just over the last couple of years. Uh, They had all the patience in the world for that. They don't seem to have the patience for this one. Anyway, Alex seems very positive. He's very smiley, right? But things are going to get quite a bit (laughs) less positive and smiley in just a few minutes. Laird's team found, find uh, in the bed itself, a big timber, like cross-section timber, which looks to be part of the structure of the stone road. Uh, And from this and some of the other things that we see here, Um, This is certainly starting to look more and more like a wharf over here than just a road. And being that the water levels would be higher, you know, you could conclude that this would be a good spot where a wharf would begin and a road would end, right? Um, But we're never going to find that out because Marty Lagina is essentially about to take his ball and go home. We next head to the war room. For a scene that we've obviously been leading up to for weeks, right? The Laginas and their team of guys have brought their archaeologists in to sort of, what it looks like is to sort of stand trial for the crime of having actually found something. Again, I'm going to preface all of this by saying this is all edited. This is what's presented to us. Who knows what really happened? I do know that in a very cryptic way, on multiple occasions, Laird has pointed out to me how stressful this season was. So I think... A lot of this is not too far off the mark. Marty says he is confused, the word he uses a couple times, by the government's decisions and the process, which seems incredibly unlikely, if you ask me, um, why he would be confused at this point when none of us seem to be confused. But be that as it may, um, the fellowship has decided, for whatever reasons, that they have had enough of this archaeology stuff. And I believe it's even Rick, in a very etu brute moment here, who says the incredibly deflating, quote-unquote, this is a treasure hunt, and then goes on to note that it is therefore not an archaeological dig. Uh, now, what I get out of all of this is the team is no longer looking to fund archaeological work like the one done on the Samuel Ball site. That seems to be what they're presenting, right? They're under no obligation to do this archaeological dig. They're under an obligation to do it that way if they want to dig. But if they don't want to fund that that archaeological dig, they don't have to. Does that all make sense? Okay. Now, the problem is, <laughs> for years and years, we've been hearing all this stuff like the real story is the the real treasure is the story and What we really want to know is what happened on Oak Island. That's the mystery. It all kind of seems like BS now, right? At least to some degree. If we thought the goal these guys had was, um, among many things, also being a true steward of Oak Island and its history, this seems to indicate that we were wrong about that and that that was all just blowing smoke. So let's go back now to Lot 4. Let me explain this a bit more. Remember, Gary is looking for evidence of activity so they can get permits needed to search more intensely. Just so you follow what's happening here. If they do get those permits, then it's Laird Niven's job to be there when they start bulldozing. So if they do happen to uncover of something of something of real historic um, 
significance, something archaeologically significant, like, I don't know, say, evidence of indigenous peoples, then the bulldozers have to stop. And if they want to continue, extra care needs to be taken before something important is bulldozed and destroyed. This is exactly what happened over the swamp. And it's exactly what the Laginas admitted they don't want any part of anymore. So why are they over there? It's treasure now or bust. And I got to tell you, it's hard not to interpret it that way. And it's hard not to be really let down by what we saw here today. Now, let me also be fair. I do get it to some degree. Archaeological digs are slow. They're bad for television and they cost money. And I would imagine that the Laginas and whoever else is helping them pay for all of this are footing the bill for this stuff. It is absolutely their choice to decide whether or not to keep that funding in place and spend that money. And apparently they've decided they're not going to do that. But weirdly, they've only decided to not do it in this spot. They're willing to die on the hill over this spot, but they're willing to open up possibility of it happening all these other places, which also leads us to conclude that we may not be getting the whole story here. And that's the part that's so, so frustrating. Make no mistake, for all of us interested in the truth behind the Oak Island mystery, as I say every week, this was disappointing and this was an eye-opening revelation. And for those of us who thought the Laginas were different from the centuries of treasure hunters before who've torn this island apart, this is the first clear evidence that maybe we didn't think they were as different as we thought. But I think we're all where I I don't think we're getting the whole story here. A couple of years ago, archaeologist Aaron Taylor told us there was evidence that the swamp was used to mine for blue clay. Is it possible that clay was mined and used by the Mi'kmaq people, the local First Nations tribe? Is it possible the answer to what these things, these strange things that we're finding in the swamp might actually be and might be looking to be more of First Nations in origin and not the Knights Templar or Francis Bacon or Portuguese sailors. Of course it's possible, but we're never going to know now because that is apparently something the Laginas are no longer interested in finding out, or at least that's the story they're giving us. So they're willing to take this risk of looking in other places but for some reason, they're willing and they're willing to invest in an archaeological dig of the Samuel Ball House of Lot 4, wherever else they're going to go. Right. They're interested in that, but not here. And are they really only not interested in digging here because the local First Nations tribe wants to get a look at this first? Again, we've been saying this a lot. That just doesn't seem to line up. I think we're not getting the whole thing. Right. So the question becomes. If they think that this road is connected to the money pit, if they think this cobblestone path was made, I don't know, by Portuguese Templars or whoever, what they're now saying to us, if they really do believe that, is apparently proving that is no longer of interest. And that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. So the only thing I can conclude is, one, either the Laginas are phonies, been lying about us, lying to us all the time about their interest in finding the real history and all that kind of stuff, or there is more here they aren't telling us. Some other reason to conclude that the work in the swamp is no longer important or merited or worth their investment, and I'm going to leave that for you 
to decide what you think on those things. Because I am honestly telling you, as much as I'm saying, as much as I'm taking them to task here, I'm telling you, I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. But for now, I'm not going to try and read between the lines here, right? I'm only going to worry about what we know. And as far as the show is concerned, Eric, during our live chat on Patreon, remarked, um, I have mixed emotions about the dismissal of the archaeologists. Is it prudent for the search? Is it prudent to protect the search? Is it American machismo? Also, what does this mean for the further show production in the upcoming season? Seems like the gears move slowly now, and if all we can see is more damn ox shoes and sonic drilling rigs, then what's the point? I would much prefer a show with in-depth depictions of what Laird and company do than just drill rigs and lipstick caps. Eric, that's well said, and only time will tell. But for those of us who have an interest in Oak Island that extends beyond just finding, uh, looking for a treasure, which has been unsuccessfully looked for for over two centuries, this was a bad day. Okay, uh, later on, there's kind of an awkward scene, <laughs> a nice scene, but a little strange one, where the guys are at the swamp, a bunch of the guys are at the swamp, and they're sort of saying goodbye to the archaeologists on their last day. It did make for a weird visual of showing the guy sort of kicking the women off the island here. But be that as it may, it was still nice. I I, I, I appreciate the fact that the show and the Laginas took the time to uh, at least um, emphasize their appreciation for the work these guys have done. Now, before we wrap up here, uh, later on, on the sh- in the show, the Laginas are uh, weirdly turning again to Laird Niven for some answers. Oh, the irony. Anyway, Laird had found a route running under the cobblestone road, and it had dated, uh, and had it dated, and the C-14 dating says 1474 to 1638. I hope I have those dates correct. Now, this could mean the road was constructed not long before those dates, and that it might line up with the dates from wood found in the money pit. But alas, we're never going to know, because this is not a, this is not an archaeological dig. They're not looking to find out when that road was made, when that area was made, if it connects to the water, if it's a wharf, they're not interested in that anymore. Because as the Rick said, this is a treasure hunt. I'll tell you what, this has been an exciting season. I'm, besides my disappointment with the way the Laginas are handling some of these things, this has been great television. Let's be honest, right? <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode of the Dig in Oak Island podcast. Shameless plug time. Uh, I do another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions where me and my friend and radio host Chris Post sit down over a drink or two. Uh, we talk about pubs and politics, do a little music conversations, talk about the paranormal occasionally, just basically anything we want to talk about. Give it a listen. Sit Downs and Sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual podcast places. And coming up soon, you're going to hear me and Chris and a few of other our friends doing a live old-time radio read of the uh, Christmas Carol from a pub down in Lambertville, New Jersey. So, so sign up for that. Uh, subscribe for that. Also, come and, see, uh, come and listen to me on the air as a DJ every Wednesday from 2 to 5 p.m. Uh, you can find me over on WDVR-FM, which broadcasts on 89.7 out of western New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. You can also just go to WDVRFM.org uh, and listen there, or you can ask Alexa to turn on WDVR. Again, that's Wednesdays, 2 to 5 p.m., WDVRFM.org. And don't forget, you can always help the show out if you're enjoying this by becoming a patron. 
If you think this show is worth five bucks a month, just head over to patreon.com slash digging Oak Island and learn how you can do, learn how you can uh, do more to help us. And also, if you're enjoying our podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much to everyone who's done that. Uh, really, here's what I'd say. Five-star ratings only. If you don't think it's five stars, talk to me first. Talk to me first. Let's discuss why you think that way, because I'm interested in knowing. And um, maybe I can. Maybe we can make a change that you like about it. I have no idea. Before you put in that rating, that's not five stars. And again, <laughs> sorry, that was shameless. And again, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them directly to me, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Don't forget, I'll probably answer it here on a podcast. If you don't want that, just make a note of it. Uh, don't forget, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, at Digging Oak Island. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.